Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the peoples, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where is this Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen uh, when it rose ahead, ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened up their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warmed in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the country by another route. Thanks for your patience this morning. Uh, we got started a few minutes late because we had to make some adjustments. If you could be praying for the Han Gutierrez family, as Sue, um, she was just uh, having some health difficulties, and so we had to jump in and make some moves around on the, on the music team. So thank you for that. You know, Christmas time is often a time where we put off all of our lights, and uh, we celebrate the season with Christmas lights. And I think even if you're not totally into, like, putting up all the decorations, you've got to respect the person, that neighbor in your neighborhood who goes all out with their lights, right? Usually it's the person, uh, yeah, you know, you know that neighbor. It's usually the dad who, who goes to Target and Walmart after the Christmas season for the past four decades and has picked up all the discount lights and um, decorations and loaded up their lawn, right? It's not just the lights around the window, it's on the trees, it goes on to the uh, roof, it goes all over the place. You've got Santas and angels and the whole mishmash of themes from around the world. So even if you don't go to all those extremes yourself, you've got to admire someone who does that, right? On Christmas Eve, there's some fuss around the, the White House uh, beyond the shutdown. Uh, it's about the national Christmas tree. The Christmas tree was damaged by someone who tried to climb it, and because it was a shutdown, they couldn't fix it. And so some private funding came in, and they got the lights working, but they couldn't get the star on the top to be back online again. So Christmas might seem a little bit incomplete without the symbol of light shining. When we enter a dark room, we turn on a light. When we drive our cars, we make sure the headlights come on. If you like hiking or camping, there's nothing like coming back or arriving at your destination, getting the fire going, and feeling its warmth. There's something assuring and illuminating when light pierces the darkness. Today we enter into 2019 on the first Sunday called Epiphany Sunday. It's a day in the Christian calendar where we celebrate the revelation of the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ's arrival, as we've been singing and hearing this morning, we remember how the light of the world 
entered into our darkness to bring comfort and illumination and beauty in a world that is in desperate need of it. From the readings today, we heard the prophet Isaiah declare that the light of God has come to bring hope and to bring blessing not only to the people of Israel, but that everyone would be blessed. Little did Isaiah's hearer know that many hundreds of years later, wise men from the east would hear of and search for the arrival of this king of the Jews, fulfilling this prophecy. But we know that not everyone responds to the light of God coming in the same way. As we look primarily at the Matthew reading today that Brian just read, we locate our response to the light of God coming to each one of us. Understanding this truth about Jesus as light is crucial to understanding our way out of the darkness in this world we live in. So we're going to look at light as a gift, light as a demand, and light as an invitation. Light as a gift, as a demand, and as an invitation. The Bible speaks of darkness in two primary categories. Darkness as evil and darkness as ignorance. Darkness as evil is the existence of phenomena that run counter to what is good and true in the world. Even if you don't believe in God, there are things that we believe that are dark in this world. Darkness as ignorance is the clouding over of our conscience that prevents us uh, from acknowledging and living to the best life possible. When Jesus arrived, there was this darkness in ancient Palestine, untold evil and suffering in the region where he arrived. There was violence, there was injustice, there were refugees fleeing, there was homelessness, abuse of power, families being ripped apart. Jesus' own family was not immune from this darkness from the moment he entered into this world. If you finish reading Matthew 2, as, as Brian just read, we find out that the, his father, Joseph, had to lead the family to refuge in Egypt in a town called Alexandria, not this Alexandria here, the one in Egypt, where many expat Jews whose political views differed from Herod had fled to. Jesus himself was a migrant refugee, a migrant refugee child seeking asylum because of persecution in his homeland. He knows what it's like to experience darkness. And it's in this dark setting that Jesus, the light of the world, comes. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the arrival of a Savior in Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. What's the way out of this darkness as a human race? We face incredible challenges today as a society, despite our technological prowess and scientific advances. We're 300 years out of the Enlightenment, right? Yeah. And we still find the same darkness that pervades our world, even if we attempt to insulate ourselves from much of it. But until we grasp this truth of Jesus being the light, we won't find our way out of darkness. We cannot find our way out of darkness on our own strength, on our own wisdom and effort. Vlachav Havel is the first president of the Czech Republic, and he reflected on a solution for his nation as it came out of socialism and became a democratic republic. He was suspicious of the hope placed in democracy or in science or in technology when it's unleft, uh, left unchecked by moral principles. He comments this way, pursuit of the good life will not save humanity itself, nor is democracy alone enough. A turning to and seeking of God is needed. 
the human race constantly forgets that he or she is not God. Whether we take Isaiah's imagery of in 9-1 that light has dawned, or whether we look at Matthew's observation about this light in the sky that guided the Magi towards Christ, we recognize that light that illuminates the darkness must come from the outside. What light we are able to start with as a fire or generate in the form of electricity is all consumed by fuel that must be generated. We depend on something beyond us for light. And just as light comes to us as a gift, so too does Jesus Christ entering into our darkness to bring hope. The question then is how do we respond to this gift of light? Last week, our family visited a woman named Miss Millie. She was one of the most passionate people I've ever met about Christmas. Over the past several decades, Miss Millie made Santa, little Santa dolls as a hobby, and her house is completely full of them. You walk in, there's like 50 of them in the lobby. They're on the stairs, and they're up in a bedroom. They're in her own bedroom. They're all over the, the, the living room. She was passionate about Santa dolls. She had a Santa from Sweden, a Santa from Germany, a Santa from Iceland, a Santa from every corner of the world. But one thing, beyond all these Santa dolls that she had made herself over decades, uh, I noticed, I said, wow, your home is like spotless. There isn't a single speck of dust on any glass. There's no fingerprints. How do you maintain it? Because you can imagine a home full of like all these knickknacks and displays requires a lot of maintenance. But she said, well, I actually don't have to do too much. It doesn't get, get, uh, get dirty. And then I thought about our own home and the dust bunnies that pile up beside my bedside table in a week. I'm going, man, when I saw uh, my eyes were open to what is possible when you are able to keep things clean. Then I looked at my own home in the corner and I said, wow, things are very different. When Jesus arrives on the scene, his presence in the light of the world demands a response as well. Herod was known as Herod the Great during the time of Jesus' birth and early years. Herod ruled as this puppet king as a, uh, of Rome in the Judean region. He gained acclaim for being a master builder in the region. He built theaters, and he built fortresses, and he built palaces. He loved his buildings. He restored the temple, which, is, which was the uh, center of Jewish worship, in hopes to restore the region to greatness in the eyes of his supporters and make a name for himself. But those endeavors didn't come without a cost. He would clear out anyone in his government who, had gotten, who got in the way of his whims. He would even take to murdering his own wife, several sons, relatives, and cabinet ministers. I'd hate to imagine what Herod might do now, armed with a modern army, artificial intelligence, and a Twitter account. Now, consider Herod's response when these magi come to see him, asking, he's the king here, right? Where is this king of the Jews who's been born? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And we're told Herod's response in the next verse. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. We're told that he is disturbed. And so are the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem at the news of this newly arrived king. Who might this king be? 
And what would it mean for the power and influence that they now had and worked for? They're disturbed. But disturbed doesn't quite capture the full emotion of the scene. We're told he quickly called his advisors together to gather intel on where this king might be. And they searched the scriptures and, the, and they, he plays the political game of telling the Magi to tell him when they find the king of the Jews so he can go and worship him. But really, he just wants to find out where he's at to kill him. Herod heard of a light shining and only viewed it as a threat to his power, as a demand. And when he finds out that the Magi don't report back to him the news that he, we want, he wanted to hear and that this baby escaped his attention, he responds with the only way he knew. How? With a heavy hand. If you read later in the chapter, we hear that Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious and he gave orders to f- kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity where who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. He would go on to implement a genocide, all because of this threat of a light. Get rid of all baby boys under the age of two from the town of Bethlehem. He hadn't even seen the light. He'd only heard of the star. He'd only heard of the arrival of the king of the Jews, the light of the world, by the inquiry of these wise men. But he responded with fear. He responded with insecurity. He was caught up in his own sense of importance and pride that he missed out on the gift that had arrived in his midst. It's often easy to see Herod in other people and think of ourselves as more refined and educated and humble. But is it really true? We may not go to the lengths that Herod did, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we might find a bit of Herod popping up in our own hearts as well. In, our own, in the parts of our lives. We may hear of Jesus from afar. We may even take a step towards him. Or we might know him now and hear his gentle invitations to trust him. But we hear them as demands. And so we put up our guards. Like Herod, when we consider that what we might have to give up, we attempt to keep him at bay. And like King Herod, we double down on our ways hoping to prevent King Jesus from taking away our identities that we've taken our lives to build. In our attempts to hide from the light of the world, we find that the light of our true selves is diminished even further rather than enhanced. But there is another way to respond to the light of Christ. We can respond to the light as an invitation rather than as a demand imposed on us. The Magi are wise men, experts in the mysteries of Persia and Babylon. They practiced astrology and dream interpretation and studied sacred writings of all sorts and wisdom and magic of their time. In the pursuit of truth, they see a sign in the sky and follow the star to Bethlehem. And though they are not familiar with the story of the Jewish people, their curiosity leads them on a journey to meet this Christ child. And by following this light in the sky, they find the light of the world. And rather than seeing this light being a threat to themselves, they saw the light as an invitation. Verse 11 says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with, another, with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and pre- presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
the Magi came with their resources, their resources of wisdom, education, and experience. They read the stars to find the signs. They used their guile and diplomacy with Herod to locate the Christ child. But when they came upon Jesus and his family, they found the only appropriate response to the presence of the king was to bow down in humility and worship. Before their eyes laid the king of the Jews, who had no wisdom to offer them, at least as a toddler. He could give them nothing immediate and apparent to merit their long journey, except maybe fill a cute Instagram feed for them. Yet their response as a wise, learned men, as the wise, learned men, was to bow before the light of the world who arrived in their midst. They offered gifts fit for a king, which indicated their acknowledgement of the precious gift before their eyes. If indeed the ancient prophecies were correct, and if indeed they had followed the signs correctly and now had found the king of the Jews before them, then this changes everything. The child before them is not just any child. He's not just light for the Jews. He's the light of the world. It's notable that one of the first groups of people recorded as worshipers of King of the king of the Jews, are not actually Jews themselves. The king of the Jews comes to shine his light on all. The luminous presence of God in the flesh is not reserved for those who in the know or those who have earned the right to know, and that gives us great hope. His light and his love extends to all who would trust him and look to him with humility. Jesus arrives at a time when there is great darkness in the land. But as we find out, and you read the story further, and you look at the other end of Jesus' life, we find there is another darkness that falls on the land when he breathes his last breath on the cross. At that moment, the Son of God, the light of the world, gives up his life to save the world. He experiences disconnection with the Father and the Holy Spirit for the first time since time began. But he experiences that darkness for the world so that those who turn to him in faith don't have to experience that darkness for themselves for eternity. When Jesus gives up his life on the cross, we find there is another outsider that speaks the greatest truth. There's a Roman centurion who has been guarding Jesus at the foot of his cross. And he looks upon the light of the world, breathing his last breath, and his darkness falls over the land in the middle of the day. This pagan soldier declares emphatically, truly, this was a son of God. The centurion, like the magi, saw Christ as the true light of the world and recognized him for who he is. Herod only saw the Christ child as a threat to his independence and his power. How about us today? As we remember the arrival of Jesus on Epiphany Sunday, how might we respond to his light shining in our world? Jesus comes to us as a gift. This light he is and this light that he offers to us is something we can never earn or accomplish on our strength and merit. We can respond to this light shining in our lives as, and in our world as a demand like Herod 
with fear and as a threat to our well-being. Or we can respond to him as an invitation, like a magi, like the magi, with joy and submission and worship. N.T. Wright, an English pastor and, and theologian, encourages us to reflect on this scene. He says, it's up on the screen, think about what it means for Jesus to be the true king. Come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts you can find. Come to him by whatever route you can and with the best gifts that you can find. We can respond to Christ's light as a demand or we can respond it as in, to it as an invitation over our individual lives. But we can also respond to Christ's light as a faith community, as a family. We can refuse to let light the light of his truth and righteousness and justice shine in parts of our story. And my prayer for WCF is that we would allow Christ's light to shine in every corner of our church and to every corner through our church on the hill in D.C., and beyond. And we're going to unpack this invitation of God as a community further next week. But as we close out the message today, I invite you to respond in this reflective prayer. I'm just going to invite you, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes, bow your heads, feet planted on the ground. I'm just going to guide you through the prayer of reflection. As you think about your own life, is there an area of darkness that you hope Jesus to shine his light upon? Say that silently on your hearts. Bring it before God. Or maybe there's an area of your life that you don't want his light to shine upon. He loves you. Would you name that before him and trust him with it? Don't be a Herod, but be a, one of the Magi. Just name that before God now. And as you think about the story of WCF, whether you've been here for a few weeks or a few decades, is there an area of darkness in our wider community that God is calling us to shine Christ's light faithfully in. Especially as we look forward in 2019 and beyond. Take a moment and pause and listen. How can we faithfully share the light of Christ tangibly as a community? God, we thank you that you have come to us because you are faithful, because of your great love, because you are just and good. Shape our hearts to be more like you as you shine your light in our lives and shine through us to the city and the world around us. Make WCF to be a faithful reflector of the light that has come 
We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Maybe as you're thinking and praying and you received something, I'd love to hear uh, if you're willing to share about us as a community. You can just email me. Uh, It's in the bulletin too as well. But through the week as you're praying and thinking and reflecting, God, how are you shining, calling us to shine your light as a community? I'd love to hear from you or share it with your leaders or the elders. Continue on.